trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, everyone. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington coming to you with another Access to Excellence podcast, where we discuss the grand challenges facing our students, alumni, in higher education. If you like foods such as bananas, cherries, guacamole, and chocolate, you'll really want to listen to this conversation because we are going to be discussing 13 foods that are in danger of disappearing because of the effects of climate change. Theodore Dumas is an associate professor of psychology in Mason's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Usually, he's trying to discover novel relationships between neural network activities and cognitive activities. But recently, he went down another path of discovery to write a book called A Food Could Talk, Stories from 13 Precious Foods. The book looks at 13 important foods that could disappear in the very near future due to climate change. And these foods are foods that many of us eat every day. Now Dr. Dumas freely admits he's not a food scientist, but he is an experienced researcher. And more importantly, he's a concerned citizen who is ringing an alarm bell about the damage man-made climate change is doing to our world. Dr. Dumas... Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm honored to meet you in person. Oh, it's great to meet you as well. It's very interesting that we're having this conversation on this topic. I found it amazing that you readily acknowledge in your book that you're not a chef, food critic, dietitian, or food scientist. You acknowledge that you're a husband and a father that has developed an obsession with climate change. And the real interesting piece about that is... That's what academic freedom provides you the opportunity to do. And you've leveraged it. You've leveraged it in a very unique way. Give me a little thumbnail about this journey that brought you to writing this book. Sure, I'd love to. But first, I'd like to say a thank you to you and to my department chair, who appreciate that science is more about just one topic. And we should be free to pursue things that are equally important to the things that we do directly in our lab. So I did spread out a little bit, and I will take the label of husband and father, but beyond that, I try not to label myself. I was actually a professional musician before I became a card-carrying scientist, so... Oh, we're going to have to get into that a little bit. What'd you play? I'm a drummer. All right. Nice. Yeah, yeah. We warmed up for Hootie and the Blowfish one time in South Carolina, and... So it was a lot of fun. So I was an artist first before I became a scientist. So am I an artist, a scientist, both, neither? The label really doesn't matter. But part of me is a scientist. So I practiced, I trust science, and science, if we don't do anything, pretend some really bad stuff will happen related to global warming. So I mentioned obsession in the book, and I may have an obsession with climate change, but I believe it's a healthy obsession. If it were pathological, it would be about a threat that doesn't exist or is very distant. But a healthiest obsession is a thought about something, a, a threat that is occurring or approaching. And so in that regard, I think it's more of a healthy obsession. And the book is really just meant to be an attention grabber in the name of global warming. 
So I first started thinking about this stuff when I was a postdoc at Stanford University in the 1990s. And that's relatively a long time ago. I'm no spring chicken. And global warming was a big deal back then. And it was prominent in California news. You would see energy, drought, storm issues coming up on a daily basis. To some degree, Governor Gray Davis was recalled. I was blamed directly for climate change and recalled while I lived in California. The dreaded gas tax. Yeah, that was it. You remember. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a big deal, and people were pissed, to say it bluntly. And that gave us Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah, as governor. Yeah, and a whole trend about voting in popular people rather than qualified people. That's exactly right. If you don't have that election, you probably don't have the election of Donald Trump, yeah. to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, I agree with that. So we had frequent lab discussions back then about the global warming problem. As neuroscientists, we talked as outsiders. But there were people in the lab, neuroscientists, who had teamed up with other physicists and engineers, and they were creating these exhaust reburner systems to burn carbon from smokestack exhaust. So there was some direct talk about that even back then. Then I came to Virginia. I got married. I got married to a foodie, new, in 2015, and I gained a much greater appreciation for natural foods. And I'll probably live a lot longer because because of the change in my diet. And I continued to read news article after news article, and there was more alarming news about food loss and specific foods that really caught my attention. And then we had kids, and I felt a greater need to take action. So I wrote the book. Outstanding. And my understanding is this book, from what I can see from the copyright, this book literally launched during the pandemic. Is that right? Yeah, that was unexpected, to say the least. And I wondered, would it be a good thing? Would people be home just reading more? Or would they be you know, not shopping as much? You would have been better off if you created it in a Netflix series. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, maybe we can do that. You know, there's, exactly. There's no stopping us. So in the first pages of your book, you say food is mood. And I actually believe that. I don't know if I believe it for the same reasons you do. <laughs> There's many reasons why food can be called mood or equated to mood. For instance, when we eat, we activate a part of our autonomic nervous system. And when you hear autonomic, you want to think automatic because it's controlling all those things in your body that you don't have to think about for them to function properly, like breathing and heart rate and digestion, salivation. So when we eat, we turn on a certain half a division of that autonomic nervous system called parasympathetic. And parasympathetic is responsible for repair, regrowth, and relaxation. Hmm. So when we eat, to that extent, we get some relaxation feeling. And if we fast and then we eat, now we get opioid release. And opioids definitely make us feel better, provide some euphoria. I want to say off topic here that we don't have an opioid crisis in America because the term opioid refers to those chemicals that are created within our bodies naturally. Dynorphins, enkephalins, endorphins, and there are very few people who are addicted to their own endogenous opioids. Although you might say some marathon runners are when they get that runner's high. There may be some people suffering PTSD who actually seek out trauma to re-elevate their opioid levels. But the big problem in America is with synthetic man-made analogs of opioids. And we're talking about things like heroin, morphine, codeine, mm -hmm. hydrocodone, oxycontin, fentanyl. These are the real problem. But when you eat after you fast, then you get that opioid release. And that gives you some reduced pain, relaxation, euphoria. And when we eat carbohydrates, we increase serotonin release in the brain. And serotonin is a mood regulator. And that can help us elevate our mood a little bit. And it also promotes relaxation. And then secondarily to these relaxation feelings, these natural foods, they contain more probiotics. And these are the good bacteria that live in our guts. 
Things like apples and dark chocolate are very high in probiotics. Other foods mentioned in the book contain things called prebiotics. These are the foods for probiotics. So the good bacteria in our guts like to eat these things. In fruits, they're fructooligosaccharides, long-chain carbohydrates. We can't digest them. We don't have the enzymes to do that. But good bacteria do, and they eat them, they divide more, and that increases the good bacteria content in our guts. And this is important because we are 10 to 100 times more bacteria than we are human. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So people, this is, don't, people don't realize that we're essentially a donut, a, a torus, right? <laughs> right, right. You exactly. know, if you look at the way our bodies actually function. Yeah. And those good bacteria, they talk to our enteric nervous system, which is our gut brain. Mm-hmm. And our gut brain talks to our head brain. And when it talks to our head brain, it promotes release of neurotransmitters like acetylcholine, which is part of the parasympathetic nervous system, but does similar things in our brain to promote better attention and things like that. Um, And also GABA. GABA is the inhibitory neurotransmitter in our brain. And as we release more GABA, that's roughly equivalent to taking like a low-dose GABA-enhancing drug to reduce anxiety to promote relaxation. So probiotics tell our head brains, relax and shed that need for immediate gratification. So food is definitely mood. Food is mood. (laughs) Without question. So you give a pretty traditional and non-traditional recipe for each food, right? For example, in your chapter about apples, you describe an apple and Brussels sprout stir fry. Did you come up with these on your own or did you try all the recipes? All the non-traditional recipes in the book were cooked in our kitchen and then photographed with an iPhone. And I say we cooked them, but New prepared all of these dishes. She's the chef in our house. Okay. And some of them were recipes that she has developed, and some were taken from cookbooks in our kitchen. Many of them are in our consumption wheelhouse, and things like avocado smoothies, overnight chocolate oatmeal, baklava, linguine with clam and white wine, and Vietnamese fish sauce. And then we also made these banana chocolate chip cookies. They were new, and we had never tried them before, and I kind of thought, yeah, you put banana in a cookie, and it's going to taste more like bread or like a tart. But they maintained their cookie consistency, and they were awesome. Wow. We're going to have to try those. So talk to us about the essence of the book, because the hook is actually quite scary. And so can you outline in a very succinct way, here is the issue, here's the grand challenge that's in front of us that our faculty, staff, students, whoever reading this book, uh, mind you, is going to have to deal with. It's about food loss. And I highlight 13 foods that have come up repeatedly in the media and have scientific backing in terms of the potential for their disappearance. But that has to be qualified because it all depends on what we do to combat global warming. And so if we do nothing at one extreme, the food itself will be scarce. Survivors will be eating you know, whatever they can find or hunt. And in this scenario, a vast majority of the United States will be uninhabitable by 2100 if we do nothing. If we take action and nations fulfill their pledges, we're still looking at a long time to recover from where we are now, but most of these precious foods can be saved. And so the book covers 13 foods. I mentioned apples and avocados, coffee and chocolate, even potatoes and beer and wine. And this is all about climate change. So yeah, it's factors related to elevated carbon dioxide. It's not the carbon dioxide itself, it's the secondary things that happen because we elevate carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. So let's start there. Give our listeners a quick tutorial. How are plants impacted 
by elevated CO2 levels and other greenhouse gases. Great. So directly, actually, plants like elevated CO2. We learned in high school yep. or in college, exactly, and the respiration of carbon dioxide, especially on warm, sunny days. So plants are taking in carbon dioxide, and with slightly warmer temperatures, they have a higher metabolism. This is actually, at some level, good for the plants. But rising CO2 and methane and nitrous oxide and water vapor are trapping heat near the Earth's surface. And it's that increased heat that's causing problems for these plants directly and indirectly because global warming causes rapid changes in microclimates and destructive weather patterns and more fungus and more bugs. So by itself, the rise of carbon dioxide is not a problem. So as it rises, you get more fungus, you get more bugs, you get more of the things that feed on the very plants. Correct. Ah, ah. So of your 13, which ones will hit first? I don't know which ones will hit first, but there's definitely different opinions out there about which ones will be missed the most. And so when I mention this to my healthcare audiences, I travel, I give seminars to healthcare professionals, mostly now about fear and anxiety and stress. And when I mention it to these audiences, avocados draws a big gasp from the crowd. But I suspect if I gave the same seminar or I was giving seminars to industrial union workers, then maybe beer would get that same gasp. So it really depends on who you're talking to. But avocados does get a big response. And avocados have become more and more popular over the last decade or so. Americans eat four times more avocados per year now than they did at the turn of the millennium. And we all know about the Super Bowl, where guacamole to the Super Bowl is what cranberry sauce is to Thanksgiving. And we eat about 8 million pounds of guacamole on that one single day. Yep, without question. And if you're in the western part of the U.S., guacamole is a staple. It is. And my wife loves guacamole, and she would give up a few vacation days if she could get Whole Foods guacamole on a regular basis. (laughs) Outstanding, outstanding. So it's really a secondary effect that you're talking about here, right? It's really all about the other entities, exogenous environmental entities that will be affected by climate change. And then those entities will affect the actual foods. Correct. And it'll be a a different combination for different plants. So let's say for even for different types of coffee, we consume what's called uh, Arabica or Robusta coffee. And we know Arabica more as Kona. And we really switched over to Arabica when Starbucks became popular. So now most of the coffee we drink is Arabica. But Arabica and Kona grow in different regions, so they'll suffer from different sorts of demises. Arabica likes to live in higher altitudes. that They will be more susceptible to direct heat and drought, where Robusta is more at lower altitudes, will be more susceptible to extreme weather events. Mm. But in both cases, there's this thing called leaf rust fungus, which is a huge threat for coffee cultivars of all types. And it's more productive at warmer weather and warmer weather. So it's a fungus. It grows faster. It spreads faster. 40% of coffee grown in Central America will likely be lost to leaf rust fungus in the next few decades. And there's also this bug called a coffee borer beetle, and it's present in nearly all coffee-growing regions. And the females, they bore into immature, amateur coffee beans, and they lay eggs. And because the entire life cycle occurs within the coffee bean, it makes it very difficult to eradicate these pests. And we just see more and more of these worldwide. So what are your takeaways with what came out of the recent climate summit, given the information you just highlighted. So we're talking about the COP26 
26. Yep. There were some good things that came out of that. And I went to the Mason COP26 debriefing to learn as much as I could about the event. And Dr. Aguirre and Dr. Maybach were on the panel and they spoke about the event. And they said everything that was present in the media. And they also mentioned that there appeared to be some governments who were doing some backdoor deals to try to push the efforts to fight global warming a little bit faster. But these are pledges, and we have to see if these pledges actually come to fruition. Of course. So when I prepare a grant for the National Institutes of Health, I have to spell out exactly what I'm going to do and the deliverables that will be there at the end, and this is in a three-year span. That's right. I'd like to see more of that with respect to the efforts towards climate change. And there were pledges for widespread cuts in methane emissions and curbing deforestation by 2030. That's all great, but it has to do with the trajectory. So if we take action early, then the area under the curve is larger. But if we wait and wait and then take action, then the effects are minimized. So there was a passage of the new infrastructure bill, $555 billion directed at renewable energy. This mm-hmm. is a step in the right direction. So you mentioned earlier that avocados is going to be one of the big ones, one of the early ones that you see hit, right? Yeah. So what's actually threatening avocados? So for avocados, it's mostly water, lack of water. This is pretty simple. For other foods, it's a little bit more complicated. But for avocados, it's water. Mm -hmm. These are very thirsty plants. And the only foods mentioned in the book that might need more water than avocados are chickpeas and cacao plants that produce chocolate. So avocados require about 10 times more water to produce the same amount of fruit as tomato plants, lettuce, or cucumbers. And avocado production has steadily declined in the United States in the recent past, mostly due to drought. And the avocados we eat now mainly come from Mexico and Chile, but they will suffer the same demise in those areas because you just can't supply enough fresh water for these plants. So let's make this personal. What foods would be the worst for you to lose? For me, coffee and chocolate. I think for many people, coffee would be at the top of the list. Two-thirds of us who live in America, we drink coffee every morning. It's actually been reported, I think it was in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine, that people who drink two or more cups of coffee every morning actually live longer, which was surprising to me. I would have guessed more heart attacks or something like that. But coffee is, for the most part, healthy, and it wakes us up. It gives us more energy. So we like coffee in the morning, and coffee contains caffeine. Caffeine is addictive. That's right. Caffeine was designated as a drug by the FDA back in the 1980s. Caffeine is a drug. It is a drug. It's a formal stimulant that we take in on a daily basis. And so two-thirds of us, when coffee goes away, will suffer due to that. And many people will unfortunately shift to other substances to provide some sort of mental boost or emotional buffer. As a matter of fact, before coffee became prominent in Great Britain in the, 19, in the, excuse me, the 1600s, beer and wine were the typical breakfast beverage. And I don't know if we want to return to that. Mm. Wine could work. Yeah, maybe. A Beer's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. Beer takes up more space in your gut. Yeah. It kind of slows you down. Wine, wine could actually work. Yeah. But it's interesting, though, because the alcohol actually slows you down, not picks you up. So. Right. But that may be a good thing. So alcohol actually has a biphasic effect in our brains. And we can see this when we go to the local pub and we play darts or billiards and have one beer or one glass of wine and you actually play better because it increases GABA function in the brain and it makes us a little bit more relaxed and our fine motor skills are a little bit better. But then we have that second beer, that third beer, that second glass of wine, and now our performance suffers. So there's a biphasic relationship. 
relationship there. <laughs> you should be one and done is what you're kind of saying, right? <laughs> yeah. So now I'm a big chocolate lover. So talk to us about that one. There's nothing better than chocolate. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you on yeah. that one. I don't know if there's life after chocolate, but we can save chocolate. I actually thought about entitling the book The Last Chocolate Kiss. Um, <laughs> oh, I, that would have been great. I, I feared Hershey would not like that so much and might come after me. And then I considered The Last Chocolate Teardrop. But the book, it's about way more than chocolate. Sure. And, and so we ended up with If Food Could Talk. So is chocolate highly susceptible to some type of fungus or some type of insect? Or what's the issue with chocolate? All right. So chocolate is special. The cacao plant is special. It only grows within 10 degrees latitude of the equator. So the strip in which it grows on the planet is very narrow to begin with. It requires ridiculous amounts of water and high heat at the same time to be fully productive. And so it's hard to find microclimates that can do that, and they're going away. In the equator, it will be desertification, and you might move away from the equator a little bit and continue to grow these things, but they still, every single chocolate bar requires 450 gallons of water. Every single bar. Every bar. Every bar. Every Snickers bar. Yep. Ten bathtubs of water to produce that Snickers bar. Really? Yeah. So this is very difficult to achieve, and it's estimated that the microclimates that can support cacao will be gone by 2070. Now, in addition to that, there are critters out there, and again, it's fungus, and now it's witch broom disease, and it impacts the leaves primarily. Back in the 1990s, it destroyed about 80% of the cacao plants in Brazil. There's also this thing called frosty pod rot. It has the potential to kill 80% of any crop that it infests, and it's poised to enter Africa right now as well. Oh, man. You got to be a little worried here. Yeah. So... I'm not going to go through all 13 foods, yep. but I do want to highlight a couple of more of the more popular ones. Bananas, for example. Yeah. Fascinating that you write that every banana we eat can be considered part of one collective organism. Yeah. I, is, I thought that was interesting. So explain that. It's fascinating. So the original cultivars for bananas that were created to feed human beings were actually crossed from diploid banana plants, which are very similar to what we are. We are diploid. We have pairs of all of our chromosomes. And when we reproduce, one parent gives one one half of the pairs, and the other parent gives another half of those pairs. And they come together in the offspring, and now the offspring has the same number of chromosomes as the parent. When bananas, for cultivation purposes, were first established, they crossed diploid bananas with quadruploid banana plants. And quadruploids have four copies of the genes. And the end result was the offspring had triploid and now you have one extra copy. And that one extra copy is problematic for reproduction and it results in sterility. So the main banana that we eat today is called the Cavendish and it reproduces asexually, typically by pinching off side shoots or suckers from the base of the plant for cultivation. And as you mentioned, this means that all Cavendish bananas are not just siblings, but they're clones from the same organism. Wow, amazing. Bananas are interesting in that warmer temperatures and higher levels of CO2 can actually benefit them, right? Yep. So why are we worried about losing them? Yeah, so we mentioned that with fruit plants and vegetable plants in general, that they actually benefit from elevations in carbon dioxide. So bananas are no different there. And slightly higher levels of carbon dioxide and a a little bit more warming of the planet is actually good. And we've had increases in banana cultivation for the last few decades. But that is a sweet spot. 
and we're now going to exceed that sweet spot. And desertification is already beginning to affect banana cultivation closer to the equator. Cloning is good for consistency of taste, but it's horrible for defense against disease and parasites. Yeah. Once one hits you, it basically can wipe out the whole plant. Yeah, and that happened once already. So Americans first ate the banana called the Big Mike or the Gross Michelle. It was Uh America's first favorite banana. It was provided by the United Fruit Company, later changed its name to Chiquita Banana. We all know about Chiquita Banana. Chiquita Banana wreaked havoc in Latin America. Economic havoc, political havoc, social havoc in order Mm -hmm. to provide low-cost bananas to the United States. The Big Mike was nearly completely decimated in the 1950s by Panama disease, the fungus that attacks the roots. And that will likely happen again to the Cavendish that we eat today. So it's Panama disease. There's also this thing called black cigatoka, and that attacks the leaves of the plants. It was first reported in Fiji in the 1960s, but now is present in Asia, West Africa, China, South America, and is poised to enter Australia. And so basically, as people migrate, and because we're so mobile and move around, we actually transport these fungi with us is that uh, is well, that how they get transported or um, not that's not the or major is it the cause. sharing of the foods so they grow more in moist warm environments so there's more of it around and then we have these dry spells and we have this extreme weather that blows the spores very far away from their origin and that's what's really allowing these fungi to spread into areas that they weren't present in previously hmm. and of course yeah if you transport a fungus in a food container there's a likelihood that that fungus will then spread in the community in which it arrives. That's exactly right. So one of the more interesting endangered foods, particularly for our region, coming up here in February, March or so, is the cherry. Most people probably don't realize that since 2006, the cherry is the official fruit of Washington, D.C. People do correlate the cherry to the cherry blossom, but our cherry blossom trees don't actually produce fruit. So... Are those trees susceptible to climate change as cherry trees that bear fruit? The cherry blossom trees in Washington, D.C. are as susceptible to climate change as cherry-bearing trees in other parts of the world. And um, the honor of the cherry being the fruit of Washington, D.C. only came 94 years after the cherry blossom tree arrived in D.C. It was gifted to the United States by the mayor of Tokyo and the Japanese people in 1912. So it took a while for that official fruit designation to actually happen. But it's a misguided name because these cherry trees don't actually produce cherries. But they do produce cherry blossoms, and cherry blossoms are a big deal, not only here in America, but also, again, back in Japan. The cherry blossom is called the Sakura, and they have an event called Hanami, which means watching blossoms every year. And the Hanami celebrates the finite character of all living things. So these blossoms, they come up all together very briefly, and then they fall all together very briefly. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful event in that nation. So what's threatening uh, cherry trees around the world? All right, so in D.C., yeah, and these are not cherry trees, but cherry blossom cherry trees. Blossoms, yes. Yeah, and for the most part, it's going to be salt water. So they get their water from the D.C. Tidal Basin. But the Potomac River uh, has a higher salinity, and it continually overflows into the D.C. Tidal Basin. And so as water levels rise due to global warming, and there's more water in the Potomac coming down from more storms and things like that, there's more spillover into the D.C. Tidal Basin. And now this provides 
provides more osmotic stress for these plants continually. And in 2019, the Trust for the National Mall, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, in collaboration with the National Park Service, enacted the Save the Tidal Basin campaign. Mm -hmm. And this campaign helps to fund National Mall Tidal Basin Ideas Lab that's working to restructure the Tidal Basin walls, which have been minimally modified since 1882. So it's about time to do something there. And American Express Foundation has donated $750,000 to this project. So I think they're going to get something done. But wow, with respect cool. to other cherry, the actual cherry trees that produce cherries, the big deal is winter chill and early spring frost. Apple trees, cherry trees require this winter chill. They need to be cold consistently for a long period of time. And for cherries, it's about 800 to 1,200 hours consistently below 45 degrees Fahrenheit or 7 degrees Celsius. And for comparison, our refrigerators are typically at about 4 degrees Celsius. And 1,200 hours is 48 days. So between 21 to 48 days, straight in a row. And that doesn't happen as much anymore because winters are becoming warmer. It's based on a chemical called abscisic acid. So when it's warmer, you get a balance in the production and the degradation of abscisic acid. When it's cold, degradation is higher than production, so it goes away. And there has to be very, very low levels of abscisic acid for a long period of time to get proper bloom. So these plants don't get proper bloom. And when they do, it happens earlier because spring starts earlier, but then there are severe frosts that occur in the late winter or early spring that destroy the blooms that have formed. And the net result is a massive loss of cherries. And if this happens repeatedly, it also increases disease susceptibility in the trees. So let me ask you, are we seeing any sign of cherry production decreasing yeah. Uh, globally? Yeah. Even in the United States, apples and cherry production has gone down quite a bit due to global warming. If you go out to the northwest in Washington state, now it's not only winter chill that's going away, but it's just harder to pick these things in the summer. And cherries don't really like to be very hot. So as the cherries are growing in the summer, there's extreme heat waves that are now impacting the great northwest. And this makes the cherries stop growing, they get soft, they fall off their stems, and it also impacts the workers. So it's very difficult now to go and pick cherries when it's 100 plus 100 degrees out, and it limits the harvest times. And these are having a massive impact on cherry harvesting in, in the great northwest. And we know that even in Oregon back in 2021, 96 people died from the heat wave there. So you can't ask these people to just go out and do their jobs. No, I get that. I get that. The Northwest heat wave this year, if that didn't wake people up, that there is something happening with our climate that is wrong. I don't think anything will. Yeah, when we think Great Northwest, we think clouds and rain. We don't think yeah. heat wave. Now, my understanding is that there could be a silver lining with cherries. Well, talk about this Asiatic black bear in Japan. <laughs> The Asiatic black bear is also known as the moon bear, and it lives in different parts of Asia, including the southern islands of Japan. And just like plants, animals need to adapt to global warming, and animals are migrating from hotter areas to more comfortable terrains. And the Asiatic black bear is no different, so it's starting to migrate up the hills in southern Japan. And it will eat cherries at lower altitudes and then move up the hills and defecate the pits out 
at higher altitudes. So in this way, cherry trees are following Asiatic black bears up the hillsides. Now, I wouldn't rely on pooping bears in Japan to solve our global cherry crisis. <laughs> but if they do, it would be a form of what's called evolutionary anachronism, where the survival of one species is dependent on the survival of another species. Right. And this is actually how avocados were maintained for a very long time. But can you think of any animal that can ingest and excrete an avocado pit? Not today, but there were these massive mammals back close to the Ice Age that were able to do that, and that was evolutionary anachronism. Um, these are the massive mammals and armadillos and really um, and sloths. Because these are yeah, the avocado pits are huge. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Ele- Proto elephants, those types of animals. Interesting. So you quote an incredible stat from the U.S. Department of Agriculture that says of the $650 billion spent on food each year, about 30% of that, $195 billion, is thrown away. Yeah, sad. Incredibly. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit. Okay, well, yeah, we throw away too much food because we buy more food than we can eat. And in large part, this has to do with the choices that we're making at the supermarket. So the battle takes place at the supermarket, and we should go to the supermarket with a plan. How much natural food are we going to buy? That should be limited because it goes bad. Trying to restrict ourselves off of a lot of foods with preservatives, things like that. Reducing our red meat intake. But the plan should be made ahead of time. And we shouldn't be going to the grocery store with empty stomachs because then we're more likely to binge shop and buy things that we're never going to eat. Because food is mood. Because food is mood. Yeah, I go to the grocery store looking for my fix all the time. It's hard not to. So I actually think there's a bigger problem than people buying more food at home and throwing a third or a half or whatever amount they throw away on their plates. You go in a grocery store, any grocery store, from a Whole Foods to a Safeway to any grocery store in our vicinity, and you walk in. And in most cases, they are stacked, filled with food, lots of stuff, right? But you know, especially in those areas where there are perishable foods, at some point in time, those foods begin to decay. And they still may be good to eat, but they may not be what the consumer will consume. Right. So they have what, expiration what, what dates. Happens? Right. What happens to that food? Right. They have expiration dates. See, that food is thrown away. Exactly. That and what about too. their dates on many of the non-perishable? Correct. I mean, the dates go way out into the future, but they're still dates. Yep. And the well, date- what happens when those foods approach their lifetime date? See, my thinking is that most of those foods are thrown away. They are. And that's where you get this large amount of waste. That is a large contributor to it. But landfills are also filled with residential food waste, so we can't ignore that. But you're right. A lot of these perishable foods have expiration dates. And so when the store sees the expiration date has been achieved, then they throw that food away. And there are alternatives to doing that. But in the first case, that they get rid of these foods mostly due for insurance and legal reasons because if somebody gets sick after the expiration date, they're liable. No, that's right. So they definitely want to get rid of the food, but what they do with the food, they have a choice there. And instead of throwing it in the dumpster, it could be given to homeless shelters, things of this sort. But you still run that legal risk. Yeah. If they give it to a homeless shelter and someone eats it and gets sick, then they got two problems. They got somebody sick and then they got a PR problem. Yeah, right. Because people will say, well, you're giving bad food away. I believe these are the kind of problems 
where Mason faculty and staff and students actually can come up with plausible solutions that can work. You need an approach that's interdisciplinary, a multidisciplinary approach where you look at the political issues, you look at the science, you get an understanding of either how to test the foods to make sure that they're still okay, or how long do the foods actually last before they cannot be consumed. And then the political and legal ramifications for when something goes wrong. You couple all of those entities together, you can create policies and methodologies that could actually feed people and also mitigate some of the liability associated with people getting sick on bad food. The sheer magnitude of food in a grocery store, and people assume that all of that food is eaten, and I can tell you it's not. That's in post-industrial nations, first world nations. Any other animal or people from other parts of the world would walk into a grocery store and be like, what, a building full of food? That's amazing. So to some degree, we just don't appreciate the availability of food. And that has to change as well. And how it gets to our plate, how it gets from a garden or from a farm, industrial farming, and then transporting on trucks that are spitting out fossil fuel exhaust. And all that has to be taken into consideration in terms of our food system. And so there are a bunch of good books out there about how industrial agriculture is contributing to global warming. Mm -hmm. And the point of this book was to look at it in the opposite direction. What is global warming doing to the foods that we love? So it's a bi-directional question or problem, and we have to look at it in both directions. Do you teach this stuff in your classes? I don't talk about food loss in my classes, and I stay away from politics because as soon as you start to talk about oh, politics, yeah. your you know evaluation <laughs> scores go down. <laughs> so, so we don't do that. We're advised to stick to the topic that we're supposed to be teaching in the class, and that makes sense too. But in neuroscience, there is this, or neuroscience related to psychology, there is this thing called delayed discounting or future devaluation. Yes, talk about I, those. I can use that to tie the two things together. So it's basically two terms for the same thing. And delayed discounting or future devaluation means that if we have to wait for something, it automatically has less value. So if you have a donut, a single donut in your hand, we tend to value that more than a box of donuts that won't arrive for a couple of weeks. We want immediate gratification. And our brains are being trained more and more for immediate gratification through TV and media. We tend to seek out goals that pay off immediately, both at the home and in the workplace. Right. Netflix is one of the reasons why they put the whole series up instead of making you wait each week right. for a new installment, yep. right? Back to back to back and you binge. That's right. Yeah, we love to binge. So then we buy more junk food than we can eat and we buy unhealthy things because we're going to the store and looking for immediate gratification rather than those things that would benefit our health in the long term. See, that's not my problem. If I go and buy six donuts... I eat six donuts. <laughs> I don't eat yeah. one donut and throw five yeah. away or, yeah. you know. So that's, again, that's more like binging. Um, <laughs> that's binge exactly eating. right. And I did I that binge too. watch, I binge eat, yeah. I binge, you know. In graduate school, for me, it was white cheddar Cheez-Its. And I could go really? through a whole box of white cheddar Cheez-Its after I finished my data analysis and I made my graphs and now it's late at night and I still can't sleep and I just eat the entire box. And I wake yeah. up at two or three in the morning with reflux and be like, why did I do that? Yep. And two weeks yep. later, I do the exact same thing. 
And you were studying why, so you actually could tell yourself why you were doing it. Yeah. It, <laughs> but it didn't stop me from doing it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I have the same challenge with barbecue potato chips. Mm. Same thing. Yeah. Same issue with me. Yeah. There are ways to combat that, though. And so I like to talk about Robert Dvorak's work at the University of South Dakota. And since he did this work, he's moved to North Dakota State University. But in one very simple experiment, what he did was he's a psychology professor. He split the class into two groups. He said, when all you guys come back to class the next time, I want you to be fasted. Don't eat lunch. So they all come back to class fasted. When they get there, half of the students drink a soda that has real sugar in it. The other half of the students drink a soda with an artificial sweetener. They wait 10 or 15 minutes for the metabolic effect. All the students get the same questionnaire. They have to choose between two items. One, it's reward-based. They'll get a reward immediately in class, a physical real reward like money. And they can choose that or they can choose a delayed reward, which would be much more money, but they'd have to wait till the end of the month. And those students who drank the soda with the artificial sweetener, they went for the smaller immediate gratification more consistently. And those students who drank the soda with real sugar in it were more likely to go for the longer, delayed, larger reward. Okay, you're going to have to explain that one. Yeah, exactly. So what happened was the students, when they came back to class, they all came back fasted. They came back with low blood sugar. They weren't satisfied on a metabolic level. And those students who drank the soda with real sugar in it, they put the sugar back in their system. They normalized their blood glucose. They satisfied their metabolism. And it was much easier for them, therefore, to look towards future, larger goals. Whereas those students who drank the soda with the artificial sweetener, they had low blood sugar. And all they were looking for was something to make them feel better, immediate gratification. Amazing. So the way we eat, this comes full circle. If we want to deal effectively with climate change, we have to eat healthy. Because if we eat healthy, it's easier to look towards the future. (laughs) I like the way you work that in. (laughs) And you did it in such a timely manner. Yay. (laughs) So our students see this, they'll hear this. Some of them listen to the podcasts, and they're going to ask the inevitable question, what can I do to help? So as we wrap up here, what do you tell them? Well, when I first arrived at Mason, I had a conversation with a fellow neuroscientist, Giorgio Ascoli, over a beer one night at mm-hmm. his house, and we talked about what makes a successful scientist. And one factor we discussed was simply mental health. And staying mentally and physically healthy permits one to achieve their goals over the course of a career. So I try to implement that thinking into my courses, just maintaining mental health. And I do that both at the cellular neuroscience level and another class that I teach called behavioral chemistry. And I try to serve as an example to my students that a balanced lifestyle with healthy food and exercises increases the likelihood that you will achieve your goals. And so we garden, we raise hens for eggs, I commute by bike, we drive hybrids, I play outside with my kids, I protect a chunk of time every day for family activities, and I think that will help me to be productive for a very long time, and I try to, again, to impress that upon my students. Those are really, really good life lessons. What practical measures can they take to save some of our endangered foods? Yeah, so if they have a a potted area or an area for potted plants, they can grow some of their own endangered foods. It's pretty easy, actually, to start an avocado plant in your kitchen. They can try to estimate their own carbon footprints, try to reduce them in the ways that they can. There are the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle, that I think are taught in some of the sustainability courses on campus. Know the difference between liking and wanting and needing to try to regulate our consumerism because the less stuff we purchase, the less we throw away, including food. So those are some of the things that I would talk about with students. Amazing. Well, look, we've seen what happens with the best of intentions. Look at how global warming has accelerated 
even since the agreements set aside in Paris. Now, I know there are reasons for it. At the end of the day, governments, countries, even mega corporations and the like, all have to step up and step up in a big way. So is there hope for this or is that a lost cause? So this is one of my biggest frustrations. And I am by no means a libertarian, but I feel constrained in my ability to do something about the problem because the problem is so big and it will take so many people to solve it. And so if we continue to elect narrow-minded, profit-seeking boneheads, then we're doomed. And we have to get rid of senators who have heads full of coal and oil and congresspersons who don't even believe in climate change. And that's simply nuts. So we have to vote these people out and vote in people who are more future-thinking and more equity-thinking. There is hope. So many nations are doing their best to step up to the plate. We have our own Build Back Better plan here in the United States. Again, $555 billion directed at climate change and renewable energy across the next 10 years. But put that into perspective, we already mentioned that $650 billion is spent every year on food. So $555 billion across 10 years, relatively small in comparison to the amount of money that's actually floating out there in the economy. And the public needs to take advantage of the tax credits that will be offered to convert to more sustainable energy lifestyles. The federal government should also offer to actually purchase vehicles with internal combustion engines from people, especially low-income citizens, just to get them off the road. And wealthy individuals do so many things just because they can. And wealthy individuals need to do the right thing just because they can. Understood. Well, let me tell you, this conversation is actually a healthy meal. I really, really appreciate you taking the time and, and engaging us. I really appreciate being invited to do this. It's an honor to be here. No, this is very fun. I want to thank Theodore Dumas, Associate Professor of Psychology in Mason's College of Humanities and Social Science for putting a spotlight on this incredibly important topic. His book, A Food Could Talk, Stories from 13 Precious Foods, is available on Amazon.com and also available in the iBookstore from Apple. That's where I got my copy. This is Mason President Gregory Washington saying, until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.